I love that song. I just love the truth of it. Freedom is here. What do you need to be liberated from? Uh, do you have some sin or guilt? Do you have shame? Do you have an issue with yourself and the issue of selfishness in your life? I am pleased to tell you that freedom is here and his name is Jesus Christ. And when you step by faith into relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want you to know this. Grace changes everything. It literally will transform your life. And in a very real way, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. It was we wrap our minds around this idea of freedom in Christ, ultimately to love others. Take your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 1 today, Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to walk our way through the final verses of chapter 1, and then next week we'll hit the ground in chapter 2. But Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Hey guys, can you bring just a little bit more light up on the platform, just a little bit, please. Uh, so we have this series in Galatians called Freedom in Christ to Love Others. Now, the emphasis comes from uh, Galatians chapter 5, which begins kind of this practical side of things. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And Jesus said this, whom the Son of God sets free, they shall be free indeed. And so Christ sets us free, but not simply for our own sakes, but that we might actually use our freedom not as an opportunity for our flesh, but through love we might serve one another. And then the ultimate expression of the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ is indeed that, the issue of the outworking of our faith in love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision really counts for anything, but it's only a faith that is actively working itself out through love towards others. Hence, the title for our series in the book of Galatians is Freedom in Christ to Love Others. Now today, we're going to draw our attention again towards the section, uh, which is the personal appeal. The beginning of the book is the personal appeal by the Apostle Paul himself. In a lot of ways, this is really an autobiographical section where Paul is really putting himself forward and exposing who he is to the Galatian believers. And so today, we've come to this second part of this series where the Apostle Paul is saying, my gospel, which is really the only gospel of grace, he goes, I want you to know that I have received it from God and that this message of grace has changed my life. With that in mind, let's read these verses together, found in uh, chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 11 and read through to the end of the chapter, and then we'll have a word of prayer together. Hear what Paul says. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not a man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism before many of my own age, among my own people. I was extremely zealous or of the traditions of the fathers. But verse 15 is one of the many big and wonderful buts of the Apostle Paul. Excuse that phrase, but it's nonetheless. But 
When he who had set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want you to know I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus, But after three years, it was then that I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas, who was Peter, and I remained there only 15 days. While I was there, I saw none other apostle except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I am not lying. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea, which is the area in Israel around uh, uh, Jerusalem. Those people who are in Christ, all they knew was this. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once destroyed. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to just lift up praise and worship to you alone who is worthy. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect son of God who took upon himself the mission of redemption. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, you loved, you forgave, you died, you rose again. Thank you, Jesus, that you are ascended high to the right hand of the Father. Thank you, Jesus that you are actively calling people into relationship with yourself. Thank you, Jesus. Bless our time together, I pray. In your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. What we have here uh, in this section of Galatians is the Apostle Paul seeking to defend the one and true message of the gospel of grace. Now, if you were with us last week, we we went into great explanation of what the message of the gospel of grace is. It is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. This is the message of grace that the Apostle Paul proclaimed for the salvation of souls. But there were those people in the Apostle Paul's time who were called Judaizers, These were people who had come out of the Jewish faith, and sure, you can have faith in Jesus, that's all well and good. However, do not believe for one minute that God can ever really be pleased with you by simply putting trust in Jesus, because God gave us Moses and the law, and you must keep the law on top of all these other things. Jesus is merely an addendum to the law. And the Apostle Paul came out swinging. Let them be damned for such a message. No way! You cannot do that to this message. This is a new thing. When Jesus Christ came and died and rose again from the grave, it's a brand new thing. This is a new covenant, not the old covenant renewed. And so he was fighting tooth and nail for the message of the gospel of grace. Why? Because if you lose the message of God's grace, who can be saved? You see, his concern was not only for those people in southern Turkey who make up this group of churches called uh, the Galatian believers, but his concern was for you and for me. Because if the message got screwed up in the beginning, then who can be saved? And the message would never make it to us today. 
So what we see here in this letter written 2,000 years ago is not some dusty old piece of whatever. It is something that is directly connected to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ today. So Paul is, is taking the defense today, and he's using a twofold prong attack. On the one hand, he's saying that there is the objective truth of the word of God about my message. We'll talk about that. But then he also goes on to say there's a very experiential side to the message of the gospel of grace. You can't have one without the other and be truly united to Christ. Let's take a look at what he has to say as he seeks to defend the message of the gospel of grace. Again, he said this, uh, I have received it from God and it has ultimately changed my life. So this message of the gospel of grace I received from God. So what he tells us here is that the gospel of grace has a divine origin. For I would have you know. Which is a very interesting way of saying, let me be perfectly clear with you, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is doing here is that he is directly setting himself up against the Judaizers again. His goal is to defend the message of grace from these people who would pollute it with works of law in the, circum, uh, the sign of the covenant circumcision. And so what he is saying is this. Hey, you guys, I just want you to know that my message didn't come through a long lineage of a bunch of people. My message came directly from Jesus Christ. You see, as noble as these guys were, the Judaizers, you would think they know the, the, the Old Testament law the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, given to Moses and recorded in the first five books of the Bible, you would think that they knew those scriptures through and through, that they understood everything that was in them. But the truth of the matter is this. What the Judaizers actually believed and what they actually were learning was not the actual Torah itself, the written law. What they knew was this thing called the oral law which is a bunch of rabbis who studied a bunch of rabbis who studied a bunch of rabbis who made a commentary on the Torah. And so they had this thing called oral Torah and this thing called written Torah. The written Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are divine revelation. The oral Torah isn't, but they treated it like it was. If you were to take the concept of oral Torah and plug it into Wikipedia, you would get something like this. It's, it's simply this. It is the holistic Jewish code of conduct encompassing a wide swath of ritual, worship, uh, God, man, and interpersonal relationships. Everything from dietary laws to the Sabbath and festival observances to marital relations, agricultural practices, civil claims, and damages. It goes the whole swath of everything you could imagine. You see, it wasn't God's actual word, it was laws and statutes and legal interpretations of God's actual word. It goes on to say this, according to Jewish tradition, the oral Torah was passed down orally in an unbroken chain from generation to generation until its contents were finally committed to writing following the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. So this is what Paul is saying. 
my message, the message of the gospel of grace, I got from divine revelation. Your high-breaded, nutsy, messy thing that you're trying to put off didn't come from revelation. It came from tradition. Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! 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 traditions. We've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our tradition, Every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. So this is where the Judaizers were coming from. They had the tradition of the fathers. And it was this endless musing and wranglings over what is right and wrong. And they became as important as the actual recording of Scripture found in the first five books of the Bible. And so what Paul is saying is this. I did not receive my message from man. It is not the endless musings and wranglings of people. I got it straight from Jesus. My message is straight from the lips of Christ himself. And so he says, on the one hand, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is highlighting the fact that he didn't receive his gospel from man like the Judaizers did. But the second thing he's also kind of emphasizing here is, not only did I not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Think about this with me for just a quick second. Nor was I taught it. Who could dream this stuff up? Think about the message of the gospel of grace for just a quick second. Okay, so here we have God the creator with his creation. He created humanity to have relationship with him. Sin enters the picture. There is separation between God and his creation. Virtually every religion has some kind of creation uh, myth or epic. And in that, somehow man has offended God, and man spends the rest of his journey on earth trying to overcome the offense against the divine. 
But when you come to the message of Christianity, what ultimately separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is this concept called grace. Unmerited, unearned, divine favor. And so this is how the Christian story goes. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but think about it. It is absolutely unbelievable when you stop and think about it. So here's the creator. Here's his creation. How do I bring my creation back to myself? So in Christianity, the creator becomes one of his creatures through the womb of a peasant girl and then grows up in abject poverty for 33 years. What? God becomes man? That's the message. And so Jesus Christ goes through this world and lives a perfect life. And the only offense that ultimately that he could have pinned on him by those, tradition, the Judaizers and Jesus day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, these people, the only thing they could pin on him was he proclaimed the love of God against their traditions. And so Jesus Christ proclaims God's love and he touches, he heals, he forgives, he loves. Ultimately, though, The creator is nailed to a cross where he is ultimately condemned to die after being tortured. And there he dies. But the Bible says that that was all according to God's plan. And so Christ dies according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And today he is listed up to the right hand of God the Father in the message of Christ. Forgiveness for sins through faith alone is proclaimed. You can't make this stuff up. It's too good to be true. You just can't do it. And yet it's the truth. It is the message. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He said this, Christianity has to be from God. For who else could have thought it up? And it's true. It's an absolutely unbelievable message. And it is too good to be true, but it is true. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me was not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, not like the traditions that you go through, but directly from Jesus Christ. Nor was I taught it, and who can make up grace like the truth of the scriptures teach it? But I did receive it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing at the very beginning here is he's emphasizing this truth. That the message of the gospel of grace and thus our faith rests upon the firm foundation of the objective truth of God's word. It is not according to tradition, it cannot be altered, it cannot be changed, but it is all of God. And this is important because ultimately traditions come and go, interpretations can change, people can add so many thoughts, feelings, or want-tos, but the assurance of our faith rests on the unchanging and unalterable word of the living God. Amen? So our faith is not just a good idea. It's not something that's going to change. It is simply the truth of Scripture, and it will never, ever change. So Paul is really emphasizing in the very beginning here this objective reality of the truth. But now he goes on, and he says, it's not enough merely to believe these facts. This truth in and of itself is amazing, but it will do you no good unless you appropriate that truth into your own life. You see, friends, you cannot truly understand grace until you have personally experienced it. It's not enough to merely believe the facts about grace. You must personally experience the grace of God in your life. 
And so now the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about exactly that. I have received it from God, and I want you to know something about this message that I preach. I want you to know something about the gospel of grace. It is so powerful. It is so profound. It radically changed my life. And Paul goes on now to talk about the fact that the gospel of grace has a divine operation in his life and in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. He says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now what Paul's about to do is this. He's going to give his testimony. The Apostle Paul has a dramatic testimony. He uses it here in Galatians 1. He'll use it again over in Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. If you want to read the actual account of it, you can go back to Acts 8 and 9. But Paul uses his testimony over and over again. Not because you will know the reality of the truth of something because it works, but it works because of the reality of the truth of it. And so Paul backs up the truth that it is God's objective word with the reality of the transformation in his own life. And so now he begins with his life before he meets Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Now the word used for destroy here, Paul chose it, is a word that means a systematic, intentional attempt to do away with something. This is a form of genocide. My goal was to wipe this pernicious truth off the face of the earth. And he went about it in a very systematic manner. If you take some of the scriptures in Acts that actually talk about what Paul did, this is what we see. In Acts chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church. He entered into house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is violent. Acts 22, as he's giving his testimony, he said, I persecuted the way to death, binding and putting men and women in prisons. And then he backed it up again in Acts chapter 26 with these words concerning his former life. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is Paul's former life. This is what he was doing. He was more zealous than these people who were the Judaizers. You think you're zealous for the traditions? I'm willing to kill over it. And so what we actually have here is this really weird flip. The Judaizers came to Jesus. Now they want to go back under Judaism. Paul was in Judaism, and he gave himself to Christ. And he said, what are you doing? Don't go back. That's dumb. So he's kind of the anti-testimony to exactly what they were seeking to do. And so he goes on to say this about his former life. He goes, I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Tradition! But when I wasn't looking for it, but when I least expected it, little did I know, when he who had set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. You'll find that in Acts chapter 9. 
Jesus Christ knocks Paul off his donkey onto his backside. And he humbles him. And he brings him to an end of himself. I I want you to notice this, again, the way that Paul builds this out. This is how every believer's testimony should go. My life before meeting Jesus, obviously it wouldn't be quite like Paul's, at least I hope not. And then there should be this time where you meet Jesus. Pre-Jesus, meet Jesus, and in a minute we're going to see his post-meeting Jesus. But every follower of Jesus Christ should have a story. Sometimes call them testimonies. It's, it's a way of relating what Christ has done in your life to others. This is Paul's story. You know, I like this part, but when he set me apart before I was born, doesn't mean he was saved before he was born, but it does mean that God had set him apart, sanctified him, or, if you will, selected or elected him to not only meet Jesus, to, be, to become an apostle who will proclaim the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, as we'll go on to say. So we have this beautiful scenario where even before he was born, God was at work in his life. You know, I don't know if you've taken the time to actually look at your story. You know, none of us can see what tomorrow holds. But all of us have the ability to take the rearview mirror of our lives and look back upon the grace of God at work in our lives. And every one of us, if we know Jesus Christ personally, will have a story. And all of our stories will be different than each other's. But we will all have a story of our time before Christ, our time of meeting Christ. And I wonder if looking back, you don't see God's providential hand in your life, even before you met Jesus, protecting you and preserving you till that day that you meet or met Jesus. You know, as I've looked back on my own story in my own life, and, and I think it's a healthy thing for every person to sit down and just kind of look back and journal your Jesus story. And as I look back in my life, I can see several incidences in my past where God had protected me and had prepared me and set me up for the day when he would reveal his son to me. One was when I was five years old. Now, I've mentioned this story here before, but some of you may not have heard it, but it was simply this. I was five years old. We were living in 71 Pheasant Avenue uh, in South Portland, Maine. It was the summertime, and Dad had the lawnmower out in the garage or a little uh, shed behind the house. Next to the lawnmower, uh, he had this bottle of gasoline. It was a big pickle jar, you know, a big glass jar with a white lid, and it was full of gasoline. I was five years old, and there was something about that that just intrigued me. And I can remember thinking, oh, wow. So one day, I actually grabbed a box of matches from the house. I went back to the shed. I pulled out this thing of gas. It was quite heavy. I was quite small. And I went down like three houses. Isn't it interesting how we know we're doing wrong? You know, I just, I can't do this so anybody sees me because nobody would let me do it if they saw me, but I want to do it. There's something about that, you know? So I get down behind the neighbor's house and I screw off the big white lid. And of course, the smell, yuck, this stuff's nasty. And I, I, remember, I remember very vividly striking the match and holding it over it and then dropping the match in. You know, somebody said curiosity killed the cat. Well, it was just about to blow me up. You know, I just couldn't, I had to figure out what was going on. But before it even hit the vapor, it just landed on the top and floated. 
I thought, that's just weird. Got to be more than this. Strike another one. And I, and, I drop, and I drop it, and it goes out before it hits again. And I do this like five or six times, and so all these blackened matches are lying on the top of the, of the gasoline. Then I hear my name, William! Oh, my gosh. Screw the lid back on, run it back to the garage, and put it away. <sighs> I have no idea what my father thought when he got out the gasoline to fill the mower, and all these matches are floating in it. He never said anything to me. I don't know. But, you know, the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 1, the last verse in chapter 1. It says of angels, are they not all ministering spirits who are sent forth to minister unto those who are to be heirs of salvation? I look back on that episode in my life and I think, I could have blown myself up. I mean, it could have caught the vapor, the vapor would have burned, I would have been blown back, it could have blown up, it could have been an ugly mess. But I think in my mind, as I kind of look back on the grace of God in my life, if you will, he set me apart even before I was born. I had struck that match, and as I was getting ready to drop it in, an angel goes, what is that? It didn't do it. Okay, one more day. What's up with that? I don't know. The day will come where I'll have clarity on this. But I'm just saying, I could have blown myself up. I saw somebody after the first service. He came down. He spoke with me. He was weeping like a baby. He said, when I was just a little infant, he goes, a big thunderstorm had come to our house. He goes, our housekeeper had a burden on her heart to go in and get me out of the crib and to take me into another part of the house. He said, right after she removed me from my crib, lightning struck the side of the house and a couple hundred pounds of plaster in the ceiling fell down and crushed the crib. He said, I see God in that preserving my life, preparing me for the day where I will meet his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, God's at work in our lives, selecting, electing, and drawing us to his son, who called me by his grace. And ultimately, that grace is expressed through the proclamation of the truth of God's word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Jesus Christ. So God is calling us. He is beckoning us in the grace of the gospel to Jesus Christ, drawing us to faith in him and ultimately bringing our dead hearts to life. And it all happens because of God's good grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me, Paul said. Now you can read again that account of Paul meeting Jesus in Acts chapter 9. But I remember the day that God did that with me. He had drawn me to a place on June the 6th, 1985, where I was in this little bedroom in, in a farmhouse in South Paris, Maine. I was suicidal and contemplating just ending the worthless life that I was living in my own sin and degradation. And Jesus Christ that night, through the proclamation of the word of God from a man by the name of Billy Graham, drew me to himself and I fell into the arms of Christ by faith, and he rescued me from myself. You see, this is a testimony. This is how it's supposed to work in the lives of the people of God. Now, some people have very dramatic stories. Paul's is very dramatic. My story's kind of dramatic when you consider I was suicidal with agoraphobia and couldn't be around other people, and now I get to proclaim his word on any given week to hundreds of people. That's the grace of God. It's his goodness in my life. It's all of God. So some people have very dramatic stories. Now, other people don't. Some people just grow up in church, and you've always kind of known the name of Jesus. You've always kind of had him in and around you. 
So do you see such a recollection of seeing God's providential hand in your life and the experience of meeting Jesus? For those of you who grew up in church, your remembrance may not be initially entrusting Jesus because you've always grown up around Jesus. You know, there's flannel board Jesus, and there's youth group Jesus, and there's all these Jesuses, you know? You always had Jesus around you. But there should come a point in your life where the faith that is in the environment that you have lived and the faith that is in the house that you grew up in becomes yours. There has to be that place in your life where you didn't maybe come to Jesus, but you surrender to the Jesus who loved you so that he was willing to die for you on the cross. So that should be your memory marker if you grew up in the church, an idea of surrendering to Christ. But for those of us who grew up in the ch- uh, didn't grow up in the church, there should be a moment where we remember meeting and embracing Jesus Christ with our lives. There just should. There should be a testimony. There should be those memory markers that we can go back to in our hearts and minds. It really is not the kind of thing that we should have a lot of doubt about. And if it is a genuine experience, then there will also be a transformation of who we are. Because Paul not only talked about his life prior to Jesus and meeting Jesus, but he goes on to make this statement. I received this message of the gospel of grace from God by divine revelation, and it changed my life. In fact, it flipped my life upside down. It was a radical transformation of who he is. God saved me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he goes on to give this kind of travel log that covers about 13, 14 years of life. But I want you to get down to right here. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That last statement should be true of every follower of Jesus Christ. It should be true of every follower of Jesus Christ. This should be our lives. Not that everybody's going to have a dramatic story like Paul's or, or like my story. Everybody's story is unique and different. But we should all have a story of meeting Jesus and seeing him change our lives. That is what happens when you meet Jesus. Not only does he forgive your sin, but he enters in and he transforms your life. Apart from that transformation... There has to be question as to the reality of one's salvation. Now again, for some there's a dramatic transformation, a dramatic turnaround, and it's so easy to see. But I just want to say this to you, that that when new life is born, as a work of God's grace in our lives, when we are born again, Just as a baby is born into this world, and the moment the umbilical cord is cut, the baby finds itself hungry. 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 Crying, whining. I'm hungry. I don't get it, but I'm hungry. And so too with with, with spiritual new life. When we've been born again, there should be this natural hunger. It's hard to describe. I'm not sure exactly why it's there, but I do know it's real. I'm hungry. 
as newborn babes desire milk, so too newborn babes in Jesus Christ desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. There's this innate desire. It happens. It is of God. It is what happens. It is true. It has to be. You know, the Bible gives us a couple of pictures, and both of these pictures show the divine work of God in our lives. One is the picture of the, of the four soils. When Jesus Christ began telling parables, the first parable he told was of the four soils. And so Jesus, to get to the chase, said that when the good seed of the word of God lands in the good soil of a heart, germination naturally happens. And out of germination, life. And out of life, growth. And out of growth, fruitfulness. 30, 60, 100 fold. It just happens. Good seed, good soil, life happens. The result is fruitfulness. And so too, again, using the analogy of being born again, when a baby is born into the world, there's natural life, natural hungers, natural appetites that are there because it's alive. So too is a Christian. As a child of God, there should be some natural indicators of life. Let me give you a few that the Bible clearly outlines as being true of those who possess Christ in their life. 1 John. 1 John was written in 90 A.D., about 60 years after Jesus Christ had died, been buried, risen, and went back to the Father. It's three generations removed from those who actually walked with Christ. Those who knew Jesus personally, then those who knew those who knew Jesus personally. Now we're on to the third generation where it's now becoming, instead of just a conviction and a belief, it's now becoming an opinion. And so he's trying to help them to understand what it means to really know Christ. So 1 John was written that you might know that you know that you know that you're saved. And so these are the things that John says should be real in your life in a growing way if it's true. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to what he says. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Let me say that again in case you missed it. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Ooh, can you say that? And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. You see, so what he's saying is this. When we come to know Christ, there should be a growing attitude of obedience towards the word of God in our lives. It just has to be what there is because when Jesus Christ enters into a life, something has to happen. And there's this natural hunger, this natural desire to know his word, to hear his voice, to know what he wants. To live into love like Jesus and to help others do the same should be a natural thing for people to want to do because of the indwelling reality of the presence of Christ. So there should be an attitude or a growing attitude of obedience to the word of God. Let me give you another one. These are indicators that should give us assurance. That's why 1 John was written. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Whoa, how's that? Because we love the brothers. You see, a second indicator of true life in Christ is a growing affection for the people of God. You can't manufacture this. You can't make it happen. It simply is what it is. It happens because there's life. And if that life is real and genuine, it's going to grow into an affection for the people of God. Whoever says, uh, it goes on to say, whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and we know that no murderer has a murder life abiding in him. 
So, so John wrote these things that we might know. Here's another one. By this, uh, here's another one. Uh, it is a growing assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit in my life. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him. Well, how is that, John? Because he has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit enters into our lives And the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are a child of the living God. That God is Abba, Father. He's Daddy God. That we now have this unique relationship with him. And Paul goes on to clarify all this in Romans chapter uh, 8, where he basically says this. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So these are some of the realities that should be true as we look back in our journey with Jesus upon our unique story of God's work in our lives. There should be a a growing attitude of obedience towards the Word of God. There should be a growing affection for the people of God. There should be a growing assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then lastly, here's one more. Uh, There should be an abiding and growing trust in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe, it's in the present tense, for those of you who are believing in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. We all have a story if we're in Jesus. There is a pre-story of meeting Jesus. For some of us, it was quite dramatic where we came from in our sin. Others grew up in the church, so your story is not like that. But we should all have a moment where we meet him. For those of us who didn't know him before, we have this dramatic sense of meeting him. For others, when you grow up in the church, it's a point where you surrender to who Christ is and you now make it true in your own life. But beyond that, there should be this growing reality of the transformational power of the work of God in our lives. Without that the Bible gives you no assurance. There is a uh, very famous man of God who preached in London many, many years ago. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this, in his mind, the worst period in the entirety of, of England was during the Victorian period. And you think, well, the Victorian period was a very staid period. It was a very time of expansion. It was a time of great morality. But according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, during the Victorian period, what he had witnessed and heard was that people wore Jesus like he was a coat. You see, they would enter into religious environments and they would put on the Jesus coat. And they would walk around doing all the rituals and all these rules and all these things. They would use all the language. But he noticed that when people were not in the environment of grace, in the environment of Christ, that once they got out of that environment, they could take off Jesus. And they could go right into other parts of their lives and you would never never even know they knew Christ. 
And so his, his concern was there was so much of a cultural religio- re- religiosity to England in those days, it was hard to know who was genuine and who wasn't because people wore Jesus like he was a coat. You could put him on, you could take him off. You could put him on, you could take him off. You can put him on, you could take him off. But is that what true salvation is meant to be? Something that you can merely wear? No. No. In fact, nobody said it better than the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's not we who put on Christ and take him off. It's Christ who puts us on and lives out his life through us. That is what the Bible calls salvation by grace, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be real. If it's real. Now, the the point is this. Nobody knows your story but you. Nobody knows your story but you. You see, I can look back in my life and I can see the the journey God has brought me on. I can put together the dots. I can connect all of these things by His grace. And I know my story. You should know your story. You should see your journey with Jesus as he has revealed himself to you. Do you have a story of meeting Jesus? Do you have a story of Jesus' transforming of your life? Very subtle, very simple ways like we talked about in 1 John or more dramatic. Do you have a story? Somebody has said this, if your religion has not changed your life, you better change your religion. I'm sorry, but Jesus changes everything. Grace changes everything. You can't merely slip it on like a coat and wear it and then pull it off and go on with your life. It radically enters in and transforms who we are. Do you have a story? Let me go ahead and get to some of the more practical aspects and we'll be done. Let me ask you again. Has God's grace changed your life? Amen. I'll I'll read that one more time. Has God's grace changed your life? Grace is both an objective truth to be believed, and it is a presence of God in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit that changes who you are. That is what grace is. That is what grace is. Now, I want to give you a challenge, or better still, maybe an opportunity I want to give you the opportunity to muse and to think on and to consider your own journey with Jesus. Here's the challenge. Journal your Jesus journey. You can say that three times fast. That's kind of hard. Journal your Jesus journey. Journal your Jesus journey. Journal your Jesus journey. Is there reality to Jesus' transformative power in your life? I want to give you an opportunity. There's a piece of paper right down here. It is also on the website under messages as a PDF file. 
But this is what it is. It is simply a piece of paper for you to consider in light of your own life before the Lord. Where have you been at work in my life? What are you doing in my life? My Jesus journey. Personal and unique because they're all different. But 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 encourages us with these words. And these are pretty potent words. Examine yourselves, Paul told the church in Corinth, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Imagine what a difference that should make in your life. And then he goes on to say, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so this is a personal story of you sitting in the presence of God and asking, Lord, help me to fill these gaps in. Help me to fill these blocks in so that I know where I'm at with you. And so looking back over my life, I could identify these following aspects. Before I had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ or gave him complete control, my life was like this. It will be different for all of us. How I met and personally received Jesus Christ or gave him complete control. You're going to read down through this and start thinking back in your heart and life. What have, I, what have I encountered? What has happened? Where did the gospel encounter me? When did I believe in Christ? And then after I came to Jesus Christ or gave him complete control, what specific appetites, affections, and attitudes have changed in my life? What specific actions that I now exhibit can I connect to my relationship with Jesus? It's your story. I can't do it for you. But you should do it for yourself. You should take the time to sit down before God and say, grant me clarity as I try to connect the dots in my life, O God, to see your work in me. And then as a result of that, you'll have clarity as to where you are with Christ. Healthy exercise. Every believer should do it. Everyone should do it try and figure out exactly where God's got you in this journey. And so I want to give you this opportunity. The papers are right here. There's about 50 to 100 copies there. Please feel free to take one for yourself, a loved one if you'd like. And uh, it is personal to you. You keep it for yourself. And may your journey be amazing. It is called amazing grace for a reason. Because when you actually stop and you look at that.